creature of the night. Who are you who interrupts my nightly feeding? I am Peter Vincent, Vampire Killer! Welcome to Bright Night, for real. This is Now Playing's Fright Night Retrospective Series. Let's talk about blood, Mr. Benson. Hosted by Brock. You know, he is insane. I do hope he's not trying to be old. Arnie. There are no such things as vampires, fruitcake! And Stuart. Kill me before I turn into a vampire and give you a hickey! What are we going to do? What are you going to do? Not me. You know how to use your lips, Charlie. Join us at NowPlayingPodcast.com each week for a new installment in this series, culminating in a week of release review of the remake of Fright Night. I've seen all of your films, and I've found them very amusing. These podcasts contain detailed plot spoilers and mild language. Listener discretion is advised. I warned you. I warned you. Welcome to Fright Night, Part 2, starring Roddy McDowell, William Ragsdale, Tracy Lind, Julie Carmen, Brian Thompson, Merrick Buttrick, and directed by Tommy Lee Wallace. Boop, 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 boop. You know who he is, right? We are watching Fright Night 2, Fright Night 2, Fright Night 2. We are watching Fright Night 2, Silver Shamrock. Yeah, he's the genius that came up with Halloween 3, Season of the Witch. You know this is going to be awesome. This is Brock, co-host of Now Playing. Stuart in L.A. Arnie in the bowling alley. Oh, jeez. Well, this is the often not seen sequel to <laughs> Fright Night. Tell me about it. I mean, my God, that's the story of this movie is how badly I wanted to see it, how much I love Fright Night, and how no one would let me see this. It was almost like a campaign to squash this movie. Arnie, I don't know. Do you remember there were TV spots that ran on this? They did have a normal trailer, but the ones that ran on TV were just titling, saying, we wanted to show you scenes from Fright Night 2, but they were so scary, we couldn't do it. And that would be it. And then they'd show a couple scenes from Fright Night 1. I mean, like, did they not want anyone to go? Like, <laughs> seriously. I couldn't even get my hands on a copy of the graphic novel. They drew a, a graphic novel of Fright Night 2. I was collecting the comic book of Fright Night, which had new adventures. I went to the comic book store owner. He laughed at me when I wanted to special <laughs> order it. No one would let me have it. I called movie theaters. Nope, not picking it up. <laughs> the original was made by Columbia Pictures. They made $25 million on a $10 million investment, and I guess they felt like that wasn't enough for a sequel. So it went to some rinky-dink little indie company that had made the gate and the wraith and the stepfather and they just had no distribution deal it barely got released so i don't even know how you guys would have seen it because it never was released on dvd or if it has it's disappeared i mean it's oh it was released on dvd and you're gonna pay a high premium if you want it it's right it's not 
on Netflix. It's not in any store. I mean, we had to go to the dark side to even see it for this podcast. Well, maybe you did. It's actually being shown right now on HBO High Def. I got to see a nice high def transfer. <gasps> I didn't. I saw a shitty little videotape version of this thing. <laughs> That's what I saw too, Brock. <laughs> I saw the VHS, baby. <laughs> I got to see it in its widescreen glory. Wow, I envy you. I've never had that experience. Me either. This was my first. I actually have kept it on my high def TiVo because I don't know if I'll ever be able to get it again. Wow. But I did tape it months and months ago because I knew the Fright Night remake was coming. I knew we'd talked about doing it. And I always like to see these films in high def. I knew it wasn't out on Blu-ray. I had no idea it was so hard to find on even DVD. I first saw it on VHS. But, Stuart, you talked about the distribution problems. Yeah, the company that got this, that got the rights to it, was New Century Vista. And I've done some research, read some interviews with Tommy Lee Wallace. And it was made, you know, on the cheap. They wanted to kind of put in as little money as they could to get as much profit as they could. Although they did spend more on this one than they spent on the last one. But here's what's interesting is they did a small release in the spring of 89, but really they decided to hold this until fall of 89 for a big Halloween release. They released the last one in August of 85. They thought August of 89 would be the perfect time to release this. It would have been. The company New Century Vista was run by a man named Jose Menendez. Does that name ring any bells? Oh my God, the killer yeah. with his brother? <laughs> the father of the brothers, yes. He- oh, okay. Oh. Wow. This is getting good. He was murdered during the time that they were planning on marketing this. And since he was the head of New Century Vista, they pulled everything and tried to regroup and figure out what to do. Welcome to Fright Night for real. <laughs> wow. Wow. That's a wonderful piece of trivia. That is a good story. So you could blame the Menendez brothers in addition to being cold-blooded murderers. <laughs> they made it so you couldn't see your movie. Damn them! I hate them more. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, they pulled everything and tried to regroup, and then they ended up selling it to either Cinemax or HBO, and that's how it got its release in video, and that's why it's on Cinemax and HBO now, is they own the rights after Jose Menendez was killed. I had to do some digging on that one, by the way. (laughs) Well, and it explains why this movie, I mean, even if it wasn't good, I've seen worse movies get higher distribution. It really was like a movie that just was buried alive. It was never given a proper showing. And there were fans. I mean, Fright Night had cult appeal. Maybe it wasn't going to be a mass hit. Maybe this movie wasn't working in all the ways it should. But darn it, I know I wanted to see it badly. So did I. I don't remember the trailers you talked about, Stuart. I remember other trailers where it's like Charlie saying there's no such thing as vampires and you got to see the vampire on the roller skates. That's the trailer I remember from seeing things theatrically like Hellraiser and things like that around that time. I I can't remember the exact titles, but I knew this was coming. I'd seen big screen trailers. I was anticipating it. And then it showed up in my video store one day. And I'm like, Mm -hmm. well, okay. And so that's how I first saw it. And yeah, this was not Roger Corman's Fantastic Four. This was intended for profit and big screen distribution. So that's why the Menendez story actually rings really true to me as to because this film's not an embarrassment. No, it is not direct to video. 
Mm-mm. No, it deserved better than what it got. And although I complain about most of the marketing of it, I got to say, when I finally did see the box, I did think it was funny that they were doing a vampire parody of all those horrible Nagel paintings. Do you remember that? You go to get your hair cut in any salon, and there was always those mime chicks, you know, or those women from the Robert Palmer video, always like a clown crying or whatever. It was the tackiest thing of the 80s art scene and they did a funny job of it for marketing it on the box. That said, I don't know that if anyone saw the box, they'd know what the hell they were looking at. It certainly isn't as good as the original poster. I still think the poster looks cool. I know it's many, many years later and apparently I still kind of like the pop art aspect of it, Uh but uh, I think it's kind of cool. Love the poster in this. All right. So when last we left everything, it was so clearly set up for a conflict I couldn't wait for, right? We all know what this is going to be about. We didn't even need to see a trailer. It's too scary to show on TV. It's Evil Ed versus Charlie, right? Where the hell is Evil Ed? Why didn't Stephen Jeffries come back for this? Well, you could call him at 976-EVIL to find out. Oh, no! He was invited back and did 976-EVIL instead. Oh, what a terrible choice! That is for people that don't know, and I hope you don't seek it out. If you don't know, was the directorial debut of Robert England. Which is why I saw it, plus it had Evil Ed in it, and oh boy, what an abysmal failure of a film. Terrible. Even with the goodwill that Jeffries had engendered with Fright Night, he was just no good in that rotten movie. All I remember is that there's a scene with tarantulas popping out of a frozen dinner because someone picked up the phone. It's awful. It tried to make dial a scared horror. With an actual number to Satan, and Ed called it. Yeah, it was, oh boy, just don't watch it. I saw it because I actually hoped it might have some kind of tie because it's 976 Evil. He was evil in the last mm-hmm. movie. That was his name. Yeah. I'm not just saying he was a bad guy. So he chose to do that instead of this. They should have waited for him. I feel like you couldn't make Fright Night 2 without Stephen Jeffries. My personal feelings about the importance of Evil Ed to the story. I just feel like if you implied he was alive, you do that story. It, it was an incredible, crushing disappointment to find out that it was a different take entirely. I agree. When I saw this, I was all like, where's Ed? And again, I I mentioned my friends and I discussed this at length, these Fright Night films, and the only thing we could came up with is it was Ed who told Regine about her brother's death. Brock, did you think he'd be back? I did not, because at the end of the movie, as we talked about last podcast, we saw the eyes who heard the voice were to assume that it was Ed, but I saw him die a long, long death on the screen, and we talked about how Arnie's friends theorized about the stake being pulled out so he was alive. I didn't think that. I thought he was dead, dead. So, no, that did not occur to me. But it did occur to me that whatever was in that house did tell Regine about her brother. It just took her three or four years to get back to Charlie to get her revenge. Yeah, but who the hell is Regine? (laughs) (laughs) So, Arnie, Perhaps you could answer that question in the plot summary. Picking up sometime after the original Fright Night, we see Charlie Brewster is now a college student and through psychotherapy has come to believe vampires, in fact, aren't real 
and that his former neighbor Jerry Dandridge wasn't a vampire, but instead a random serial killer that Charlie and Peter had stopped and killed. But despite returning to seemingly normal life, aided by psychologist girlfriend Alex, played by Tracy Lind, the vampires aren't done with Charlie as Jerry Dandridge's sister, Regine, and her group of monsters, including werewolf vampire Louie, androgynous vampire Belle, and Renfield-like bug-eater Bosworth, come to town to get revenge for Jerry's death by turning Charlie into a vampire so they can torture him for centuries. Spotting the vampires eating his roommate, Charlie again runs to late-night movie host Peter Vincent for help, and they investigate to find Regine is actually a performance artist who pretends to be a vampire. Only in the 80s, folks. <laughs> Which is, of course, her cover for being a real vampire. <laughs> oh, brilliant! It's just crazy enough to work. <laughs> Until someone put, you know, actually throws holy water on her and wants to know why she's melting. <laughs> well, she begins to seduce Charlie, slowly draining his blood and holding him in her thrall and converting him to vampirism. Meanwhile, she also takes Peter Vincent's job as late night TV host. And when Peter tries to stake her on live television, he's committed to an insane asylum. Meanwhile, werewolf Louie is taken to stalking psychology student Alex, who only has eyes for Charlie. But after a rousing bit of bowling... <laughs> <laughs> it was the 80s. I bowled, you bowled, we all did it. I like bowling. Bosworth, Belle, and Louis kidnap Charlie, and Alex must spring Peter Vincent from the psychiatric ward to save him. Some hijinks happen, including Alex's teacher, who's also Charlie Shrink, turns into a vampire. There's a riot at the psychiatric ward to get Peter out. But eventually, we have the showdown between Peter and Alex with Regine and her brood. Charlie's vamping out, much like Amy did in the last film, but he still manages to kill Bosworth. Peter and Alex take out Louie and Belle, but as Regine is about to complete Charlie's transformation, Peter uses a shard from a mirror to shine sunlight into Regine's lair, killing her and returning Charlie to normal. So, there's the plot. It seems in so many ways like a retread and a reversal of last one. So many ways! <laughs> Anything Charlie did in the last one, he does the exact opposite here. <laughs> I think that nothing else can be said about that movie until we get that on the table right off the bat. It's Fright Night. They could have gone anywhere, right? The comic, they were fighting sea monsters. They were fighting all kinds of creatures. We didn't even have to go back to vampires, right? Like, you would have accepted it if they got into a werewolf. You would have gone with it, right? It would have to stay with one of the universal classics, honestly. I think if they'd gone too far away, if they'd done sea monsters, it might not have worked. I would have gone with werewolves, and I would have gone with vampires. Anything else, I'd have to see how it played. Aliens, I don't know if I would have gone with, although they might have been setting that up at the end with Peter Vincent. <laughs> yeah. Isn't the creature from the Black Lagoon counted as one of the classic creatures in Universal? It is to me. Yeah. I agree. Yeah, it is to me too, so. It is, but I mean, when you say sea monster, you could be thinking the Kraken, or you could be thinking the creature from the Black Lagoon. When he said sea monster, I thought Kraken. I see. Okay. Yeah, if they're going to do so much of the original movie, I don't necessarily need Charlie. I could have a whole new guy encounter something similar if you're going to go vampires. With Peter. Peter's kind of the star. I feel like he would be the one that'd have to return. I would have been okay without Charlie. Yeah. And certainly, if you're not bringing back Ed, I would have been okay without vampires. I agree. I could see Peter Vincent as the one to go into various mystical things and be called on by somebody else. That said, I was happy to see Charlie back. I liked that character enough in the first one as a kid that when I saw this, 
I wanted that continuity. I wanted Charlie and Peter together again. I said last time I saw it as a buddy film. You got to have the buddies together again. You can't have Murtaugh without Riggs. But it is Charlie without Ed, and it is Charlie without Amy. Did that not throw you? Well, we talked about the Ed thing, and I, I did miss Ed. Without Amy? Come on, that, it, there was a high school romance. It wasn't going to last. Come on, Pete, vampires dream about her for centuries. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> he forgets about her after his third quarter. I mean, you know, whatever, I guess. She went to college, did some experimentation, cut her hair. I know, yeah. Ended up on Married with Children, <laughs> sure. Yeah. Look, perhaps this movie was a little better, Arnie. I wouldn't have cared, if, but I honestly didn't feel that we needed Charlie in this movie. After watching this movie in completion... I don't need Charlie in this movie. I liked Charlie in the last one. I liked the actor, as I mentioned last time. Yeah. And so they really bring him back because they're trying to redo, recreate all of the beats of the last movie. There's a a paralysis of creativity here. They really are trying to do everything they did the last time, but in reverse. Yeah, instead of a sexy male vampire, it's a supposedly sexy female vampire. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, Julie Carmen is not as alluring as everyone on screen seems to want to make her out to be. Am I correct in saying that? Yes, you are correct in saying that. I kind of found her masculine at some times. Honestly, yeah, I I agree. It's one of those where they say she's sexy, but I'm not seeing it. (laughs) I did not feel the pheromones were as powerful as everyone else on screen was claiming that they were. You know, and it doesn't end there. The setup is different. In the beginning, Charlie was the believer and had to convince Peter. Well, here it's totally the reverse. Charlie's been getting some therapy, and therapist has gotten it into his head that Jerry was never a vampire, that he was a cultist who had murdered people for sure, but there was nothing supernatural about him, and that vampires are not real. But Peter is still going on Fright Night and talking about when he used to fight vampires with a twinkle in his eye because he really has, in his mind, fought a real vampire. Did that work for you, or is this just too much of the old thing? I like the idea of reversing it. I think a big part of Fright Night's marketing was the whole, there's no such thing as vampires. If you start off with both characters equally savvy, then that's losing some of what people liked about the original, and especially in the 80s. I think these days people get a little bit more creative with sequels, but in the 80s, you know, I look at the worst sequels, especially some horror sequels, some of the Friday the 13th, Teen Wolf 2, you know, they want to just recreate every beat from the previous ones, and so I think I can see why they do it. My problem is I was never quite sure who believed what when. When he goes back to his dorm room and throws all the stuff away, I was like, wait a minute, he actually believes this? I thought he was just telling the therapist what the therapist wanted to hear so he could stop going to therapy. And so that really surprised me that he was in that reversal, especially after all that happened last movie. I I didn't really buy it very much. He's saying this to his shrink and to his girlfriend, who's the shrink's, like, Padawan. And so I'm like, does he really believe it? He's throwing the stuff away. Then they're hanging out with Peter Vincent. And I'm like, so he doesn't believe it. And then he's like, well, I just couldn't break Peter Vincent's heart. So I'm like, he does believe it. But then he sees vampires arrested Peter Vincent. Peter Vincent's like, Charlie, you pshaw. Let's go investigate. I'm not even bringing a steak. So now it's Peter who doesn't believe it. And this continues throughout the whole fucking film. 
I'm never sure who believes what when. If it was done well, I'd have gone with it. In this film, ooh. I hear what you're saying. People vacillate from their positions too far. I feel like there's a lot of jumping back and forth from scene to scene, and you're never quite sure where people stand. It is a big problem with this. But I would say that the beginning is more or less that Charlie is the non-believer, and that Peter is the believer, until they have another repeat. If last time the vampire moves next door to Charlie, this time it moves upstairs from Peter's apartment. Was that the only one who kind of didn't get that at first until Peter calls out and says, this is my neighbor? I didn't realize that Charlie was spying on Peter's building. I agree. I thought it was next door again. I didn't realize it was the same apartment building until much later in the movie. Oh, I got that much just because he's looking out the window of Peter's apartment when the limo pulls up and the coffin-shaped box comes out of it. And then, of course, when they're downstairs after visiting, the whole crew sort of waltzes through the lobby. Yeah, I know. And I was wondering, why are they in his building for? (laughs) I was sort of the same thing. And then I thought Charlie followed them to their own building. (laughs) Oh, okay. I was a little confused there. Yeah, a little bit. (laughs) I knew why they were there until later. And then when it's established that she's a performance artist that's in town only for a week, I'm like, well, then why are you moving into an apartment? Why aren't you staying at a hotel? This is not a hotel. But (laughs) I felt like I understood it at this moment. So not only is it the sister, we'll find that out later, but not only is it a female vampire, but she has more henchmen. In true sequel tradition, you make more, right? If Billy was pretty good, then having three henchmen is going to be even better. What do you guys think of her crew? My favorite part of this movie is her crew. I actually love two of these actors. The third one, I don't know if I ever saw again. <laughs> Let me guess. <laughs> Belle did not appear in some obscure sitcom that you watched later. This is correct. <laughs> Maybe he's doing something with Stephen Jeffries. Okay. <laughs> I was not clear if Belle was male or female. I got to say, they played that line pretty well. I was not sure... I was looking for Adam's apples. I could not tell. (laughs) I'm on the same page. I really, yeah, I I didn't know if it was male or female, and I just knew I wouldn't go home with it either way. (laughs) And I I called him the prince vampire the entire movie. (laughs) A little taller, even on the roller skates. Oh, sure. No, you know, (laughs) I I didn't think he was from Minnesota either, but I did, he had that kind of effeminate kind of look, especially with the hair, the bigger hair. You know, it's kind of a Prince vibe going here. Yeah, they're flirting with the whole bisexuality again, this fluid sexuality. It's fun. We don't really know what this character is around, and it gives them an allure. You're right. I like this crew. I like all three of them. I think they all bring something that, frankly, Billy didn't have, even though I thought he was pretty good the last movie. The crew's better than Julie Carmen. Yeah. I like the werewolf one the best. He is by far my favorite of the crew. Now, this guy, this actor, John Grease, I have seen so much of his work. I have been a fan of his, I dare say, since I first saw him as Laszlo in Real Genius. And so when this came out, I recognized him. And also, I had seen him play a werewolf very recently when this came out. He was a werewolf in Monster Squad. Oh, oh is he the one who has nards? Yes, Wolfman has no Yes, that is the same Wolfman. I, I, Typecasting. It's very similar makeup. Maybe he just kept it and he got the job because he had the mask. 
Yeah, yeah. It this was guy, year before. I, I recognized him, but I don't know exactly from where. I felt like of all of this, he was the one playing the evil Ed role this time. If Steph- Stephen Jeffries wasn't back, we need somebody with weird line delivery and sort of a spastic energy to bring what Stephen had. And he's no Stephen Jeffries. I feel like on that scale, he pales, but he is pretty fun. And he, he definitely is doing something that none of the other ones are doing. I think this actor always brings energy to his roles. If you've seen Napoleon Dynamite, he's the uncle in that too. So this guy- uh, Oh, yeah. This guy continues to bring that kind of energy to it. So I love him. And the other one, Bosworth, this is another actor who I have seen work so much. Brian Thompson, primarily known as the alien bounty hunter from the X-Files, is where I really became familiar with his jawline. (laughs) It is quite a severe jawline. If we thought Arnold had, uh, you know, a fearsome cheekbones, this guy, like, it's weird because he's built, but he's skeletal at the same time. It's a weird undead quality to him. He he is freaky. That tongue, that tongue is fucking huge. (laughs) Holy cow. This guy, he does so many of these types of heavy roles. He's been multiple villains in Buffy, and I always recognize him under however much makeup because of that jaw. Mm -hmm. And so when I saw him here, I'm like, it's the alien bounty hunter. I did have to IMDB his name. He's always the alien bounty hunter to me. He may be my favorite. Just, I love the way that he's always like naming the <laughs> scientific name for the bug as he's about to, to swallow it. It's just such a weird quirk. I don't know. And he's the one most buttoned down. You don't know what he's thinking. You don't know what he's doing. I found him in many ways the character I would go to first. We know what the Wolfman wants. He wants to date the chick. And well, Belle, I think is just happy to suck up to anything. But this guy, <laughs> he isn't a vampire. We don't exactly know what he's going to do. I suppose he is the most like Billy from the last one. He is the undead helper. What I love, though, is it would be hard for me to say whether I liked Louis or Bosworth more because I love their interplay. The few scenes when those two are on screen together from the very beginning when, like, Belle and Regine are eating some guy and Louis goes, can I have a bite? And Bosworth gives him that look to the bowling alley to the you're supposed to kill her line that's repeated so many times. Their interplay brings an energy that there is nowhere else in this entire movie. And I I want to see the Louis and Bosworth film. I'm with you. I like the crew. I wasn't sold on Regine, but I, I liked her posse. Yep. I thought that they could work without her, frankly. Yes, I agree. I also thought the reason they had Regine there, the plot of the movie, was weak. So that on top of the performance of the actress and all that jazz really gave us a weaker core to the movie. But these three really helped keep it interesting. With the sister thing, all I can think of is Howling 2. Your sister is a vampire. (laughs) (laughs) Ooh, a retrospective. We've dodged that silver bullet many times. (laughs) Imagine what what will bring me back to that. The marsupials have to be revisited someday. (laughs) You're right. I do think I have to watch that one more time in this life, (laughs) if only to uh, accept the fact that it exists. But yeah, Regine and Belle, does Belle ever even speak? Nope. It's a totally mute part, which is, again, how they perpetuate the androgyny of it. We just don't know. We have no cues. But I like the look of Belle in the opening kill in the dorm room where Belle's on the roller skates and has that appearance Mm. like it's flying. Mm -hmm. And it's got the hair back. It reminds me a little bit of Grace Jones and Vamp, but I'm liking the look of that vampire a lot. Yeah, I agree. It's a completely physical performance. They have nothing to work with but how they look from scene to scene. But he works. I mean, it's not everyone that can pull off long fingernails and roller skates, but Bell does it. 
And overall, in addition to the crew being larger, I felt this whole movie was larger. We talked last time about how anytime they left Charlie's hood, you could really tell it was a back lot. Here, we're going all over the place. We go to Peter's apartment, we go to college dorms, we go to bowling alleys, shrinks offices, psychiatric wards. I never once got a back lot feel off of this. I thought the production values were pretty good. We're in the same place, right? I mean, this has to be the same town of Peter still doing the same show at the studio. Mm-hmm. Yes. He didn't move with Charlie. But you're right. I don't connect this with the small town feel of the last movie. It does feel bigger. It does feel like a different place. It felt like more location shooting to me. I mean, obviously. Yeah. And so that yeah. was really a big difference. And I think we can credit this, believe it or not, to our director who was experienced. Whereas last time Tom Holland was a first time director, Tommy Lee Wallace, as much as we may rip on Halloween 3, he's experienced. He knows how to get a film in on time and on budget and had much better production values this time around. Yeah. Let me be clear, though, that this movie is not nearly as well made or crafted. I mean, there are no setups that are nearly as good as the Hitchcock, though they may be influenced, ways that Charlie learns about the vampires. If anything, it is in sheer adulation of what's been done before and slavishly copying. Oh, yes. I was trying to give Tommy Lee Wallace the one plus I could give him before the rest of the podcast. Oh, okay. (laughs) Well, let me know when you're done. (laughs) I'm done. I'm done. (laughs) Okay. Let's dig in. A couple of shots in this opening scene, the angles the camera is at, it's like the camera was at their feet when they're in the elevator at Peter's house. I was like, why is the camera down there? They had like these aerial shots, which we learned is a bat view. Some of them are, and then some of them just feel like, well, we can shoot on the roof. Yes! Last time, we always knew when we were in Jerry's POV, but here I was like, oh, we're getting Regine's POV as they're leaving the apartment. No, it's just an overhead shot. It just seems a little all over the place with the camera. No, I agree. I'm missing how well and how controlled, maybe by spanning the world, that's part of the problem, but it feels less contained and in control. You can just sense that Tom Holland is not here, and and I do wonder why he wouldn't have wanted to come back for the sequel. I know he was off making Child's Play when this was in production, but come on, that movie was no good. I'd much rather see him make a Fright Night 2 than Child's Play. (laughs) Maybe I'm alone. I would have liked to have seen anything back. I would have preferred to see the whole crew of Ed and Amy. Hell, I'd even like Chris Sarandon to be like, I'm not really dead. I'm back. (laughs) Better than Regine. Just keep Louie and Bosworth and bring back everybody else from the first one. If you're going to go that route, I hear you. You might as well have a twin. You know what I mean? I would have done that too. But instead of Amy, we get Alex, played by Tracy Lind, who... I'm I'm watching this movie, I'm like, I recognize her from somewhere. I had such a crush on her in the 90s with my boyfriend's back, where she was the lead in that. I haven't seen it. I thought she was very attractive in this movie, though. I dare say I liked her much more than the other character. I didn't mind what Amanda Bierce was doing in the last movie, which I said before, but as a character, as the girlfriend of Charlie, I like this character more, and I thought she was attractive. I thought she got the job done. It's not a quantum leap forward as far as girlfriends go. She's the blonde version of what he had last time, right? I mean, she's cynical. She loves him, but at the same time, she doesn't buy into his whole vampire stuff. She tolerates that part, and they haven't had sex, right? I think it's the same situation for some reason. Now, I took it as they had sex quite often. There's some opening scenes that are pretty randy, and I'm like, ah, Charlie got himself a woman that puts out 
willingly. Okay. See, I wasn't sure. I mean, they definitely heavy petting, hot and heavy, but I feel like it always pulls back. And the same frustration for her is he's into her and then he's thinking about vampires or more specifically, he's thinking about regime. That's what happens in this film. But from the opening scenes of them together, I took it as they were consummating their relationship. Yes. But then we had the same question about how much did horror movies influence his sex life last time. Here, the majority of this movie is Charlie's getting bitten, Charlie's turning into a vampire, Charlie's got other things on his mind. So no, he doesn't get laid a whole lot during the course of this film. I kept seeing Once Bitten in this. You know, and Once Bitten, it starts out Jim Carrey's a nerd, and then when Lauren Hutton starts biting into him, he starts being a stud, or at least in his own mind. He starts acting like a stud, whether he is one or not. They're kind of doing that a little bit here, right? His hair gets a little bit cooler, he's wearing the sunglasses, he's just a little bit more of an alpha male once he gets some vampire juice flowing in his veins, right? I didn't see Once Bitten here, but a very similar film I did see here, My Best Friend is a Vampire, which even has the same scene as we have here where they're trying to eat a pizza, but there's garlic on it. You know, he's becoming cooler, his hair gets slicked back, he's wearing sunglasses during the day, he's you know, all of that is, I saw my best friend as a vampire quite a bit. Regardless, I think what we're agreeing to say here is that this is more familiar, yeah. that this, this is something we've seen before and the imitators of Fright Night, now Fright Night 2 is trying to play catch up with. So Charlie, from pretty early in this movie, seems to be slowly being transformed into a vampire because Sade kind of takes a little bite out of him, but doesn't really bite him. <laughs> Was this bothering you, Brock, that it took days for him to transform? <laughs> we got into that last podcast about how long does it take. Well, we have his roommate in a few scenes from now seem to be transformed within an hour, right? And then here... The point you're making is glaringly obvious, that it's different for different people. He needs to be bitten three times. Well, that wasn't the case for Richie, the roommate. Is he a roommate? He kind of comes and goes. He's not there most nights. He's a roommate. Yeah. And okay. and so she just she dipped her fang into his open cut, which was one hell of a shaving cut. And that starts him going down the dark path of turning into a vampire. And apparently sunglasses will help that sunshine problem. I, I just, I was having a lot of trouble understanding why he's taking so long to transform and why she's going about it this way. Because I understood her grand scheme, and I thought that was brilliant, actually. But I don't understand why she was going about it this way. And she's taking her time. She's playing with him. She seems to be enjoying drawing it out. You know, if you want to torture someone for eternity, you don't have any problem with, you know, taking a week to turn him into a vampire. That said, it is frustrating how some characters convert right away because it's convenient for the plot. Honestly, did you need that Richie roommate character at all? I mean, sure, it's kind of kinky when he's got the blindfold on and Belle and Regine are both tag team. But beyond that, I just don't feel like he did anything for the plot. I agree. He really was a nothing character. And Do you recognize him, by the way? I had to look it up. I knew his name, but I couldn't figure out how he was the name. I don't know him. Who is he? He's Kirk's son. Star Trek 2 and 3. Really? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Did not get that. No. Yeah. But the only reason he's here for the plot was to get Charlie away from his girlfriend to follow the vampires back to the dwelling, right? 
It is so functional. It yeah. could have been anybody, right? I mean, it didn't have to be a roommate. It could have been, he saw the coffins coming. He saw Regine, you know. Did it even have to be a person? Couldn't he have seen her again and she invited him back to the party? Oh. I, I don't feel like he did anything. I agree with you completely. He saw the vampires there. He could have followed them because he saw them there. Absolutely. And for all of this fact that they're moved into the same apartment building that Peter lives in, they don't seem very interested in getting him at all. It's always about luring Charlie over there. Like, And Peter's the one who staked Jerry. Yeah, I agree. And she has plans for him as well, but they come later. Taking his job. <laughs> That's kind of a late revenge. I feel like, yeah, the main thrust of this is bringing Charlie over. You just didn't need Richie to do that. Charlie here, when I said this is a reversal in every way, not only is Charlie the non-believer, but Charlie becomes the Amy of this film. He's the damsel in distress. Mm -hmm. He's the half-vampire locked in a room. And strangely, Alex is our new star, which I didn't see coming and I didn't like. I don't know if she's the star, but she certainly has to do a lot more than Amy ever did in the last part of this movie. It's a whiplash-inducing change when Charlie goes off to be a captive, Peter Vincent is put in the psych ward, and now it's left to Alex and Mr. Carosi. And Mr. Carosi turns out to be a vampire, and all of a sudden I don't feel like I'm in the same film. I agree. What'd you guys think about that twist? I feel like at the end, it's a long way to go to just make a therapist joke. And that's all it's good for, really, is that the therapist that's trying to convince you that it's all in your head is actually the thing that he's trying to repress. Uh, really? Well, obviously, he was bit in the middle of the movie, because at the beginning, Charlie's therapy session's in the day. So, Regine, in part of her plot, had to have turned him. No, I didn't, I didn't even put that together, but you're, I guess you're right. We don't know he's never in standing in sunlight. I did rewind. It was, yeah, bright daylight coming through the windows. So if it could have killed Jerry, it would have killed him. The plot twist kind of reminded me of the way that it's found out that the boyfriend of Diane Weist is the head vampire in Lost Boys. It's like the character you're least thinking about is actually one of them, right? But he's so not tied into the rest of the story that it just ends up becoming a bad 80s therapist joke. I hated how prolonged his death was where the stake wasn't in far enough. And instead of just pulling it out like Jerry would have done, he has to push it in further. Oh, it's all played for bizarre slapstick. There's nothing scary about that moment at all when there's at the railroad crossroads and the train's not coming and he bears fangs. It's just awkward. You're right. It doesn't feel like it's tied in with any other scene in the rest of the movie. And then the fact that she, I guess, needs his credentials to get into the nut house. Well, that's all fine and good. But did no one look at the photo? I feel like there are better ways of writing yourself out of that situation than what it takes to get Peter out of the nut house and back into the story. Right. Yeah, this whole thing goes on too long. And if you're going to bring Charlie back, I don't think you bring him back to make him the damsel in distress. I think you needed the buddy cop thing again. And Alex and Peter did not work for me as a duo. Mm -mm. The chemistry was not there. And as hot as Tracy Lynn is... I hate her in this movie. I don't believe anything about her character, the way she speed reads through Dracula and all of a sudden has this bizarre fascination with vampires. I do like that they pull out some really obscure vampire fighting methods like the altar shroud and the communion wafers. These are not your everyday average holy water and crosses, but her character works for me 
in zero ways in this film. And when they push her to the forefront, I'm checked out. I, I didn't buy the whole jailbreak thing at the nuthouse with the, uh, the long-haired kid. Oof. Open a window. That stuff stunk. <laughs> yeah, it just didn't work for me at all. I didn't buy that she was breaking there to get that guy out. And we're trying to go for something funny here. It's not working. With the combination of that and the slow transformation plot I don't like about Charlie, in the middle of this movie, I'm left with a whole bunch of stuff I'm not really going with. Unlike the last movie where I was hook, line, and sinker into it. Well, if Halloween 3 has taught us nothing, it's that Tommy Lee Wallace has no problem with bizarre plot strands to get from A to Z. I mean, it doesn't surprise me they went here, but I can honestly say this. I had forgotten this whole subplot from the last time I saw the movie way back in, you know, the early 90s to now. I I didn't remember anything about this, and it doesn't register now either. It doesn't feel like a big part of the movie. It just feels like a diversion for five minutes. Completely agree. And speaking of diversions, bowling? Yeah. What the fuck? Not one, but two bowling scenes. First, Charlie, when he's half vampire, decides to go bowling alone, and it just so happens his girlfriend happens to work there? I i don't know why she's there. No. You know, the only thing I could think of is, is maybe it's in the student center. Yeah. Because a lot of bowling alleys were, so maybe she was walking through getting something else in the student center and said, hey, I think that's my boyfriend. But I did not get that. I thought he was like at a strike and spare. <laughs> Why would the student center serve beer? They do. Some of them do. All right. I went to a smaller school. It needed to be better established, but that's the only thing I can think of, Arnie. But you're right. It's a random scene. It's a random joke. And then they have the montage to In the Midnight Hour. It would only have been better if it was sung by Robert Englund when they're bowling. (laughs) What the fuck? You know what? I hated that scene when I first saw it because it was the scene that told me for sure that this was not going to have any of the scares of the original movie, that they're just doing something silly now. So I was very against that scene when I originally watched it. Now, given that these are the characters I'm actually gravitating towards, I actually think it's one of the better scenes of the movie. I actually think it's kind of fun to watch them cut up and roll the bell down on the roller skates into the pens and squirt the headless guy out like a beer tap and run his head through the ball return. I mean, is it brilliant? No, but it (laughs) it is a sense of playfulness that a lot of the rest of the movie doesn't have, and I don't know if it even needed it, but I appreciated it. I'll agree that it had the playful sense, and again, I was happy whenever Bosworth and Louie were on the screen together, Yeah, but I think... Because of where this comes in the movie, I'm like, get on with it. I did not need a pointless bowling montage. Mm-hmm. Oh, but so many of these things are go-nowhere and pointless. I mean, pointless is a good word. Richie is a pointless character. The going to the nuthouse and the therapist seem pointless. There is so much that's about wasting time now. Really, the only scenes that matter are the scenes that transpire between Charlie and Regine. You know, when she first comes to him and does the whole Lauren Bacall thing. And that's the stuff that we're watching and waiting to see unfold. The rest of this, it's wasting time. Louie and Alex, not needed. What'd you guys think of it? I thought it was actually trying to set up some suspense because she had no idea that he was a vampire. You know, I thought they were going towards something there and it didn't pay off for me. I actually liked the idea of that very much. I liked it. And I think I liked it because of Louie's energy. You know, Tracy Lind, there's a reason she's not working today, folks. But 
Louis in these scenes, he's always so full of energy. You know, like you said earlier, he's kind of trying to be the evil Ed here. He's doing unusual things, unusual gestures and things. I love his libidinous energy that he brings here. And I was enjoying this and I did have some suspense. Does he want to fuck her? Does he want to feed on her? I don't know. I'm going with it. Or both. It was great. I thought it was one of the things that if they explored more that her new boyfriend was a vampire might have been a little more fun. I don't know. I, I could have been convinced, but when all we get out of it is the chase through the library with that very bad makeup, I just feel like that's all this was. I will say this. Did you know roses thwart werewolves and or vampires? No. I'd heard something about roses. Again, like I said with the whole shroud and communion wafers, I had heard roses and I, I'm pretty sure it was werewolves though well that was unclear to me you know he is obviously looks like a traditional werewolf but when i think about the original bram stoker he does come to nina at one point as a wolf man creature so vampire werewolf uh, it's not clear to me but obviously she read it in bram stoker's book so it must have been a form of vampirism because it worked yeah Yeah. it seems like there'd be better ways to do it Hadn't she seen Lost Boys by this point, the squirt guns with holy water? Well, they do use those later, but it takes the climax to get there. Here's a plot that I felt like could have been developed better. Regine is there to take away the job of Peter. All right, here was my first thought is, as somebody who, like you, Stuart, would stay up late and watch horror movie marathons on TV, I might have enjoyed the campy fun of Peter Vincent. If I turned on my favorite horror movie show and saw this bitch dancing around like that, I'd be looking for a new channel. Really? I thought this interpretive dance was actually kind of wiggy fun. Uh, call me crazy. I don't think I don't think Regina's too many great scenes, but this I kind of like. Understand what I'm saying, though. I like the scene in the movie, but if I was turning it on to see a Peter Vincent thing, and I saw oh, this, I agree, like nouveau artsy impressionistic <laughs> dance, I would I would yeah. think that I had turned on something really really wrong and pop in a VHS. I hear what you're saying. It seems like a weird thing, but it, it was such an opportunity to play with that, that people still wanted to watch these movies, but he was too old to be doing them. He was the one that was tired, and now we're going to get Elvira. Now we're going to get the sexy chick to hawk this. Don't you feel like it just comes in, in the movie real late and really underdeveloped? I think the idea of how to screw with Peter was an afterthought for her plan anyway, right? But it shouldn't have been. That's the problem. I agree. Uh, yeah, he was just as much a factor, if not more, than Charlie right. in taking care of her brother. But you're right. She's got it in for Charlie and Peter at secondary to her aims. But I did like the idea of her taking away his show and discrediting him as a vampire killer. Yeah, I like that. And I- I'm thinking, though, I thought it was out of character for Peter to attack her on TV. He He always seemed so cowardly that to do that on live TV was boneheaded and not him. It would only work if he found out he was being fired in the moment she was coming on set. Then I would have believed mm-hmm. You know what I mean? But the fact that he goes away to a bar and has some time to think about it, maybe we're supposed to think that he's drunk, but he doesn't really act it, and he hasn't been established as a drunk. It just doesn't work, and it's too bad because it's a funny idea. And it's true, horror hostesses, they did try to bring in that TNA. Rhonda Shearer. Yeah. I mean, Elvira, classic version of that. I mean, I feel like they were on to something. There was some savviness here, but... I wish it had come across as satire then. I wish that it would have felt more parodying the tropes that their audience 
are used to instead of just another random plot point. Right. Yeah. But I did like this dance scene a lot more than the dance scene in the last movie. If there's one thing that Fright Night 2 gets better than Fright Night 1, it's the dancing. No. <laughs> I'm sorry. Regine has nothing on Amanda Bierce. <laughs> oh, ouch. <laughs> Give me Amanda Bierce's none to whore dance any day over this, like, I felt like I was watching a really bad stage play. I was not into it. I, I don't go see the Blue Man group either, so maybe it's just my taste. No, no, I, I, not just when she's doing it on air, but at the party as well with Belle. I mean, I just feel like the dancing is more clearly established here than, I don't know, I felt like that nightclub scene in the last movie was awkward, and I just uh, don't feel like it worked in the way that the rest of the movie did. Here, I feel like it's integrated a little bit better. I didn't care for it, Stuart, as long as I say about that. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I wouldn't pay a ticket to go see it. I'm not even sure I'd turn it on for free on TV. I'm just, I'm just trying to find maybe one of the few areas where this movie actually bests the movie it so clearly wants to be. But the fact of the matter is, most of Fright Night 2 is just redoing it in a very lazy way. Changing genders, flipping characters' roles, but saying the same lines and hitting all the same notes. And it's disappointing, and it didn't have to be that way. I agree, and by the time we reach the climax, I'm realizing what a pale, pale imitation of the original this is, and... Uh, it's funny, it's funny, because they're vampires, uh, and, and they're pale. Unintentional, what do you know? But, yeah, not enjoying <laughs> it, and I think a big part of it is, again, the role that William Ragsdale's been put in. William Ragsdale can't play cool. If he's supposed to be cool with these shades on, I don't know, I, it just wasn't working for me, Alex wasn't working for me, Peter wasn't playing true to character. So everything I liked about the original seemed pissed on, and the two henchmen I liked didn't get enough screen time. Yeah, I, I agree. And, you know, more centrally, when Amy's being converted, it's also erotic. Like you said, it was like a break in virginity. When Charlie's being changed, you don't even get the sense that Regine has the hots for him. It's just more so like, now that when you become immortal, I can torture you all the time. It's all vengeance and no sex appeal. And taking that away from the formula really hurts it. I agree. Were we supposed to think Regine was into Charlie? I didn't. I kind of thought it during some of the early scenes, but then later on, it didn't feel that way. I feel like she was putting on an act, but I don't get the sense that she in any way had any attraction for him the way that Jerry did for Amy. Agreed. I completely did not, for one second, believe she actually liked the guy. I believed it back in the very first biting scene. I thought she did, but... It's all done through eyes and face. We have no lines or history to learn anything more about this. It's a very cold setup. And that may be this movie's biggest failing. The villains are so cold, whereas last time Jerry and Billy were such a great duo, Jerry especially, to bring us in. Regine just does nothing but push you away and keep you at arm's length the whole time. Yeah, you called her Sade, and it's exactly the very definition of an aloof chanteuse. She'd rather be under the sea singing to herself than paying a bit of attention to you. And that's how she comes across here. I, I really do feel like, Brock, that was a brilliant comparison. She is the vampire equivalent of Sade. And as much as I like these henchmen, boy, when they're ready to get rid of them, they get rid of them quick. Oh, yeah. Bullseye, dude. <laughs> really? That's it? I know, that was really a terrible way to take out my favorite vamp. And even Bosworth kind of gets the shaft because Charlie, who's like in full vamp mode, takes Belle's fingernails and stabs them <laughs> into Bosworth and he bugs out. 
Yeah, yeah, well, you guys mentioned earlier that this Hollywood 3 director, he must like that bug death a lot. I know. Boop, 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 boop. Maybe he just, you know, collects insects or something. I don't know what it is about the fixation, but here it is again. Well, here it makes a little sense, though, if you think about why did he turn into, why he got eviscerated and bugs popped out. This is the guy we saw eating moths, right, and bugs in the movie. But doesn't he have a digestive system or is he just storage? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not disagreeing with you, Arnie. I do think he would by now, these little things would be digested, but that's where I think they were going with it. Why, if he's a vampire, or an undead, I guess it is, why the nails cut him open and kill him, I didn't understand it, but after the, the green slime death in the last movie, I guess that's the same kind of thing, you know? Yeah, exactly. But Billy died hard, and Bosworth died easy. He, like, he decompressed, you know? He just oozed yeah. out. It was unsatisfying and, and head-scratching, but at the same time, I was like... Oh, okay. No, and Belle just gets a sheet thrown over, and that's the end of that. I mean, that was a cool glow, though. I like the glow. Yeah. Oh, all right. I liked it too. I thought that was the best one of the three. I never heard of the Holy Shroud killing a vampire before. I completely believe it because it's a you know, as we talked about with the holy water and the crosses mm-hmm. last movie. So I bought that one. But the cool thing was the effect was effective. I thought it really was a cool death, especially compared to the other two. I guess so, and I guess we shouldn't forget about Richie, who gets squirted with holy water and water guns. I had forgotten about Richie, yes. (laughs) Completely. (laughs) Yeah, he's bringing the tea and gets a squirt. It is what it is. But no, I again, like I said before, I like that they brought in the roses, I like that they brought in the shroud, I like that they brought in the wafers, because these are like the B-level or even C-level vampire weapons. So (laughs) to see them use I at least felt like they were trying to do something other than what we'd been seeing now in the past four years of vampire films since Fright Night made Vamps cool again. Yeah. But if they're trying to do something different with this, then that we talked about it earlier, how they keep repeating beats. They even had Peter Vincent realize that they're vampires using the exact same technique with his cigarette case. I thought that was gonna... a nice callback. I was okay with that, but here's what they can't replicate. His character arc, the fact that he went from someone who was play-acting to someone who was a believer. Right. And now, when he's brandishing crosses, they work because he has no reason to doubt, and there's no place for his character to go. He finds out that there's vampires again, and, you know, it makes him a little scared, but basically, he's the same person at the beginning as the end of the movie. So, Regine goes underground in the apartment complex? Alright, this makes no sense. None. She has a penthouse. Why not keep the coffin up there? But no, she lives underneath the elevator. (laughs) And if she has a penthouse, it didn't seem that deep. The whole difference between where Peter was and where they were. I was very confused by the geography of how high up the penthouse was. I'm confused. The penthouse is on top. Yes, but it didn't seem like it was like 50 floors above where they were underground. You know, it felt like it was maybe... Five or six stories. Oh, yes. Well, no, it's not to scale, Arnie. It's to- <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> Will you forgive the movie that? I'm not forgiving this movie for shit. <laughs> no, I, I, there's nothing fun about this ending. We talked about the last time that the original climax was protracted, but they earned it, so we go with it. Here, I am sighing. I am looking at my clocks. I am waiting, waiting for this to be over once all the henchmen are dispatched and we just have Regine making it down to the basement. And it's a much shorter climax. You know, this one's only about 15 minutes. Yeah. Yeah. It felt eternal. Feels like so much longer because it doesn't have any of the magic of the last one. I will say Regine's makeup effects are better than Jerry's. She looks better as a vampire than Jerry did. But worse as a human. (laughs) 
What do you guys think of the way they dispatched her? Well, it's pretty much the same point as the last time. It's sunlight again, only they bring the mirror interplay in. First of all, the effect was terrible of the, like, drawn-in sunlight beam. Second of all, it took so long. Third, why the fuck didn't she just step out of it? Exactly. She could have moved away from the hole in the ceiling doesn't make any sense. She's gloating about how many hiding places she has, and it doesn't matter if she doesn't have a coffin. A beam of light comes out. Ah! The end. And Charlie is somewhat vampire at this point, and he's holding her into the sunlight at one point. Why isn't he starting to burn up? He says that if they don't kill her right now, that the sunlight will kill him. It, it is a flaw of the move. One of many, and I'm not going to spend too much time dancing on it, but it deserves to be called that. Yeah. Problematic movie. They have not fixed what wasn't working with Fright Night, and they've certainly found a lot of different ways to make it worse. So let me just ask, where do you think it went wrong? Do you think it was Tommy Lee Wallace? Do you think it was lack of ideas on part of the screenwriter? Do you think it was because it was a less experienced production house? I do feel like the biggest problem is in the direction. I feel like if the movie had been made with the care and the style and the possession of the last movie, I could have accepted this flawed retread and still had some fun with it. I think there would have been better performances gotten out of it. I think there would have been more exciting setups and more things that reminded me of old Hitchcock. It's just lazy movie making. I feel like that's the greatest one. But more centrally, I just think that whenever you try to emulate something so closely that you don't dare to do anything original, you really are fading your movie a horrible death. It can only be a shadow of its former self. They needed to think outside the box, and in a big way. If they weren't going to give us the Ed fight, I just feel like, don't do vampires at all. I think the screenplay is a big weak link, and I think as Stuart kind of said right there, is that the first one was a lot of fun and had some originality to it. This one, they decided to just go a lot of the same places, and nowhere near as clever and as fun doing it. So, I think the screenplay is the major problem here. So, uh, Stuart, Arnie, do you recommend Fright Night Part 2? Stuart. Well, you know, there's always a part of me that's going to, to like Fright Night anything, because there's so little of it, frankly, and I did have so much fun the last time. But as much as I enjoy the things that went right about this movie, and don't feel like it's as horrible a sequel and as horrible a drop as some we've seen, at the end, I don't know how you'd even find this movie. It's not worth the hunt. <laughs> how about that? <laughs> the trouble it would take for you to get a copy of this is not worth the trouble of watching it. If you're an HBO subscriber and it's one HD, and you really like the last one, go ahead and watch it. You're going to be disappointed. But no, this movie is in obscurity, and I can't think of a good reason to restore it. It's just not good enough. Not recommend. Arnie. No, I mean, again, this is not by any stretch of the imagination the worst movie we've watched, but it's not enjoyable. And the first film just has such a spark to it, such a life and a magic that can transport you beyond the 80s and beyond a movie experience. And to follow it up with this, well, I mean, this is to me, as much of an aberration for Fright Night as Halloween 3 is to Halloween. Oh, come now. <laughs> I mean, it's just, it, it, it doesn't have to You do not mean that, sir. I do, I do. I mean, admittedly, there's no place else for Fright Night to go, whereas Halloween has a lot more to be compared against, but I just am so disappointed in this movie. 
And I tried to find some joy where I could in the henchmen and in the gratuitous titty shot and in a few other places. But overall, it's poor screenwriting and just poor casting of the lead vampire and poor motivations all around. I don't recommend it. It's bad. And I apologize for posting links on Facebook where you could watch it because I'm not recommending it and yet saying, here, go watch it. So that's a dichotomy. (laughs) And I, too, do not recommend this movie. I have the exact same line about it that Arnie just said. It's just no fun to watch. And there's so much pleasure in the last movie. Here, it's just devoid of fun. The three henchmen can hardly carry this movie. And Mm. they were fun parts when they were there, but this movie's not really about them. They're just there, and they're just happily there for us, because otherwise, if they weren't there, (laughs) there ain't nothing else here. So, no, a a nice big no recommend for this one. And we have one more movie left in this retrospective, but we're getting a remake, so I guess we're kind of spared, because if they went Fright Night Part 3 before they did a remake, who knows what they would have done? Well, I know a little, actually. Really? I did read the comic book, and believe it or not, they did bring... Evil Ed back, and they even brought Jerry back, and they did not bring Regine back. (laughs) (laughs) So that should tell you something. I I have to know. Tell me, what did Jerry and Ed do? Ed ran a nightclub where he was a DJ, and for some reason, Jerry had come back as well. But it took a while to get them. It wasn't like a one-issue kill. They did continue on for a couple different issues, and... It was good to have them, classic characters, mixed in with the sort of more episodic storylines as well. I enjoyed that series. It should be said that Charlie wasn't as big a role either. There was a ponytailed bartender that also came into it. It definitely had more of a Ghostbusters feel to it. It felt more of a Frog Brothers team versus the evil and the undead in the comic book. But I didn't collect it that much. I think it only ran for 20 issues and I didn't get them all. My interest wanes in comics in general. But I can say this. At the comics' worst, it was still more inspired if not better, than the movie we just watched. Hmm. But going into the remake, I dare not hope that it has the spark of the original. But if it does, it really makes me wonder where it could go with the sequel. I mean, to get McLovin as evil Ed, that that could work. We'll find out next week. I love the casting on this. I haven't liked a single trailer I've seen. (laughs) But Colin Farrell as the vampire... Chekhov from Star Trek, and also Michael Bean from Terminator. He seems to be the right fit. McLovin, I like Tony Collette even. I feel like the cast is so good, I know I'm going to enjoy something about this, even if it's as bombastic and kind of silly as that trailer makes it look. I'm not encouraged to like the movie, but I know I'm going to like the new Jerry. My fear is, and we can talk about this more next time, but to allow listeners to preview this movie is made by marty noxon the writer who drove buffy the vampire slayer into the ground and who wrote i am number four i've never seen buffy or angel or any of those shows that doesn't mean one thing or the other to me but well i'll go into it a bit next episode but it makes me reserved in my anticipation And above and beyond Marty Noxon, I was at the Fright Night panel at Comic-Con. I was really excited to be there. All the stars were there. Colin Farrell was there. He actually did a, they're after me, Lucky Charms. I couldn't believe it. (laughs) (laughs) 
He's pretty funny, Colin Farrell. He's he's never one to uh, take himself too seriously, which is, I think, part of why I appreciate him. Yeah, I liked the panel quite a bit. It was actually very weird because it was moderated by Chris Sarandon. So I had the two Jerry's right there. Oh, weird. How fun. Is he involved in the new movie? There apparently is a cameo in the new movie and he was involved i guess behind the scenes a little bit but he moderated the whole thing with all the stars that was pretty cool although is it me or does he look like a homeless dennis miller these days (laughs) i haven't seen him these days (laughs) has anyone seen him these days (laughs) then they showed the footage and oh my god this is looking really dumb colin farrell and David Tennant could carry this picture. If it works, it's going to work because of them. But they showed a couple action scenes, and we'll talk about them next week, I am sure, because wow. Well, I, mercifully, I didn't see them. I've seen a little bit from the trailer. Nothing about the trailers really impressed me, but I go on the strength of the cast alone, and I feel fairly confident that it won't be horrible. How about that? We'll see. I'm going in with an open mind because I love the franchise. But I don't feel like Fright Night has ever been perfect. I think there's room to maneuver and explore. It looks like they've transplanted it to Vegas. I think that's an interesting idea and that it looks like Peter is now a magician. And, you know, the houses are all abandoned as they tend to be in Vegas. I feel like there's nice touches here. I'm feeling optimistic until I watch those trailers. And then I'm like, oh, this looks kind of dumb. Well, I I hope for the best, fear the worst and sharpen my stakes. And I have seen no previews at all and no commercials at all because I knew we were doing this series and I wanted to go in as fresh as possible, having not seen the movies up until now. So I'm going in with fresh eyes. I didn't know the cast was that deep. I do like all those actors. So yeah, let's go into this with the right amount of high hopes to end a series again on a high note. And that being said, you can hear other series we've done in our archive section at nowplayingpodcast.com. They're up all on iTunes. If you want to hear them there, you can subscribe to us. You can also go to Facebook and Twitter. where We're very active on posting there. We do movie mini reviews when one of us sees a movie during the week and we have discussions with you listeners there on Facebook. And you can also discuss all of these movie reviews in our forums. And a link to our forums can be found on our webpage, which again is nowplayingpodcast.com. You will also find a donate button in the bottom right-hand corner. If you feel the urge to donate to us and support us, please do, because we are paying for this out of our own pockets and it takes a lot of time and a lot of expense, but we don't want to make you feel like you don't want to do something you don't want to do. But if you feel compelled, please throw us a few dollars. Every little bit counts, so we can keep giving you Now Playing on a weekly basis. I look forward to hearing your guys' final thoughts on Final Destination 5. I look forward to seeing you guys again next week for Fright Night, the reboot. Okay, until next time, see you soon. You're out of time, Mr. Daddy. Thank you for listening to the now-playing Fright Night Retrospective Series. If only there had been a few more of you, perhaps my ratings would have been higher. Come back to nowplayingpodcast.com each week as we review another installment in the Fright Night series, leading up to a week of release review of the Fright Night remake. I thought I'd let the vampires rest for a little while. Right, Charlie. And in the nowplayingpodcast.com archives, you can find reviews of other film series, such as Friday the 13th, Scream, The Lost Boys, Final Destination, Halloween, and many more. We also have individual movie reviews for films like Avatar, The Human Centipede, and Scott Pilgrim vs. The World. I expect we have a lot of the same interests, you know, in horror movies and the occult. And while at NowPlayingPodcast.com, be sure to join our forums where you can discuss these films with other listeners. 
Now that I've been made welcome, I'll probably drop by quite a bit. In fact, anytime I feel like it. You can also follow Now Playing on Facebook and Twitter, where we post announcements of new episodes and where the hosts post movie mini-reviews. You know, like an orgy of the damned. Links to our social media pages are at nowplayingpodcast.com. That might also explain your fascination with low-grade melodramas. I am so proud of you. Support from listeners like you help keep Now Playing operating. You can find a link to donate using PayPal at the bottom of our website, nowplayingpodcast.com. I have a $500 savings bond. I'll take it. You can also show your love of Now Playing Podcast by shopping in our store, where you can buy Now Playing t-shirts, coffee mugs, mouse pads, and much more. The link to our Cafe Press store is available at our homepage. Come on, dude. <laughs> it's party time. The Now Playing Fright Night retrospective series is edited by Arnie. You might amuse yourself some other way. Bowling, perhaps. Bowling? Now Playing is not affiliated with DreamWorks or Columbia Pictures, and no infringement is intended. I mean, you're going to need all the help you can get, right? Somebody like Peter Vincent, for instance? The opinions expressed on Now Playing are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the opinion of Enganza Media Incorporated. There. Satisfied? Totally. And you're finally convinced I'm not a vampire either, right? Yes. Well, I'm glad that's so. Now Playing is a Venganza Media production, copyright 2011, all rights reserved. We're all through for today. You could say that again, partner. See ya. Soon. Oh, you're so cool, Brewster. <laughs> I can't stand it. I did think it was funny that they were doing a vampire parody of all those horrible Nagel paintings. Do you remember that? You go to get your haircut in any salon, and there was always those mime chicks, you know, or those women from the Robert Palmer video, always like a clown crying or whatever. It was the tackiest thing of the 80s art scene, and they did a funny job of it for marketing it on the box. That said, I don't know that if anyone saw the box, they'd know what the hell they were looking at. It certainly isn't as good as the original poster. This is news to me. I just thought it was a cheap box. No, it's Nagel. You remember Nagel. Come on. I've never heard of Nagel. This is my first exposure to Nagel. Did you ever get your hair cut? At a barber shop with men and a little pole. Okay, no. Okay. Brewster. <laughs> I can't stand it. Charlie starts off by saying to Mr. Carosi, did, did either of you recognize that shrink as Mr. Carosi from the summer season of Saved by the Bell? Or Of course, it's Ernie Sabella. Yeah. He's also the voice of Pumba for all in, in The Lion King. And he was Jason Bateman's uh, landlord in It's Your Move, but... I don't know what you guys are talking about. Are you speaking English? <laughs> yes, we certainly are. We you know, know it's your move. I know you know it's your move. I don't know who this actor is. He meant nothing to me. Well... <laughs> oh, you're so cool, Brewster. <laughs> I can't stand it. Bell actually, though, has appeared... All right, no, no, not anything. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I, I I I hit the IMDb page earlier and saw how Stella got her groove back. So I thought he went on to be some actor, but no, he was the choreographer. So choreographer. cut all that. There you go. <laughs> oh, you're so cool, Brewster. <laughs> I can't stand it.
Did it even have to be a person? Couldn't he have seen her again and she invited him back to the party? Oh. I, I don't feel like he did anything. I thought you meant, like, couldn't it have been, like, a deer or a dog? Um, yeah, <laughs> that's where I thought you were going with it. Uh, no, um... Oh, you're so cool, Brewster! <laughs> I can't stand it! Brock, that was a brilliant comparison. She is the vampire equivalent of Chardet. Yeah, that's how you say Chardet? Yeah. Oh, I thought it was Sade. Oh, well. Oh, well! <laughs> Blooper! Oh, you're so cool, Brewster! <laughs> I can't stand it! Can I have a quick question for you? If vampires are immortal, how come so many things can kill them? Alright. <laughs> I don't understand. Just to ask. Oh, you're so cool, Brewster! 